0: Greetings, my friend. We're all interested in the future, for that is where you and I will spend the rest of our lives. But what is the present if not the future of the past? And the past itself was once indeed the future, a future which is now but a distant memory, swirling forevermore than the plug-hole of eternity through the drain-pipes of forever. My friend, well, you may ask, what time, then, is it? And I would tell you that it is no time to look back. But in a more real and immediate sense, I would tell you also that it is thirteen and a half minutes past seven in a small pub in southwest London called the Tombstone Tavern. Though innocuous it may seem, behind its doors lie a swirling, tawdry mess of gruesome spectacles from the days of darkness past. Here, Deep in the dingy dark of its bat-ridden basement, framed by flickering candlelight and the stench of stale beer, we shall bear witness to the meeting of five icons from the history of horror. Five figures whom the symphony of scares have passed by. We shall hear as they commiserate, belly ache. And seek to renew their enthusiasm for the macabre with tales so terrifying and grotesque that even their hardened souls will be moved to fear. Presenting Vlad Dracul. Sup. Frankenstein's monster. It's, uh, her spectral ladyship, the ghost of the Right Honorable Lady Shirley Edith James. Charmed. And. I'm sorry, Mr. Wolfman, I can't find your name.
1: It's Spot. Really? No, you imbecile. It's Wolfgang.
0: Wolfgang the Wolfman? Isn't that a little... No. It's a lot. All right, then. Moving on. And finally, the queen of a land long since claimed by the shifting desert sands. The resurrected body, not dead, not alive, of Her Majesty Queen of the Nile, Ankh Esenamon.
2: Please, call me Annie.
0: Well, there we have it. Or do we? For you see, my friend, you have entered a dimension you cannot hope to understand, where things are never quite as they seem. You are traveling down the motorway of imagination in a hatchback made of mystery, which runs on the petrol of perpetual petrification. Welcome, my friend, to Tales from the Tombstone Taban. Okay, let's see what we've got here. Bloody Mary? Thank you. One Vu Carré?
3: Much obliged. A
0: quadruple of bourbon mixed with ale, which I'm fairly sure is illegal, or at least should be. Just
1: give it here.
0: A glass of toddy for Annie for a whingy show.
3: Late, as usual. Sundials are no way to maintain punctuality, especially after dark.
0: And a Guinness for me. Hey, uh... Hey, Vlad, uh, you, uh... You sure you don't want to, you know, look at the wine list?
4: I'm not saying it. Come on, you sure? Yeah,
1: you really don't want a nice cab, Sav? Perhaps a nice Pinot Noir.
4: Tell you what, Wolfie. You get the deal lousing, and I'll say the line.
1: I don't have lice. I just don't. I take very regular baths. Well, define regular. I take well, Define bad. I'm not taking hygienic advice from someone who sleeps in a coffin. Or for that matter, from someone who's dead. You're really
4: going to have to be more specific. I
0: meant Frank. I've been real clear on the whole name thing, guys. It's Adam, ah, Adam.
4: interesting call, given he's arguably the only other person at this table to be alive.
1: What are you talking about? Frank's made out of corpses.
4: I'm right here. You're made out of lint. What gives? It's a ship of Theseus thing. A what? Say Frank's a ship. Adam. And the ship, which is the original SS Frank, hits a rock and gets patched up. <sighs> okay. This keeps happening until the original components of the ship are all replaced. Placed. Is it still the S.S. Frank?
1: I... I... of course.
4: Then how is Frank not alive, even though his constituent parts may have formerly been considered corpses?
1: That's bullshit. Oh yeah? Yeah. One, Frank's not a ship.
4: Granted. Two,
1: the ship would still be made out of wood, and Frank is still made out of corpses.
4: The point of the ship of Theseus analogy is to explore the essence of being. And if that essence comes from elsewhere bar physical components, then so would the quality of life not depend on the physical components.
1: Bullshit! That's semantics.
4: Is not. Is told. Is not. Is told. Who's
1: Theseus? So will you be quiet. So
3: undignified. Looking at this table, one would hardly think it hosts some of the greatest monsters in the history of macabre fiction.
4: Babe, I've been played by Gerard Butler and Adam Sandler.
0: And Frank Langella. Uh,
4: Frank Langella. (laughs) Dignity, it hasn't been part of the equation for a while.
1: Face it, Cheryl. We're schlock. We've always been schlock. We're now just schlockier than we've been for a while. Well,
3: speak for yourself. But I refuse to believe that we've been quite so utterly consigned to the bargain bin basement of scary stories as you insist.
4: Oh? Call me the next time an MR James story is a box office draw. Face it, Cheryl. The world of horror has passed us by. Well, there's no reason to get shorty about it. It is what it is. We had our day, or night, but now people aren't interested in vampires or werewolves or reanimated corpses. I'll admit, ghosts are still hanging on in there. But unless you're willing to possess a porcelain doll, I'm unsure that means much for you.
2: Hiya, voice Shirley. Annie. What you drinking about?
1: Oh, this, that, the other. We're talking about how we're all obsolete and no one loves us.
2: <laughs> a subject on which I'm sure the whole table has much expertise to share. I presume you have my palm wine, Adam? Uh,
0: one toddy right here. Oh,
2: you're a darling. Hey, Vlad. Care for a taste?
4: hmm Oh no, thank you. I never drink water.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So what's all this about being obsolete? I rather think it's
3: a boy's thing.
1: Hey, existential dread has no gender.
3: Don't talk to me about existential dread, you overzealous mutt. I walk in eternity. There
1: you Come on, let's. A mutt? Please, I am the archetype of the boogeyman.
4: I... Was that, like, a boast or something? Every
1: time sexually active teenagers get impaled, I am there in spirit.
4: Bro. Stop.
0: Wolfie, you are digging a hole for yourself, the depth of which I don't think you understand.
2: I still don't know what we're complaining about. The boys were fretting over the fact that when one examines
3: the current state of spooky stories, present company is nowhere to be seen.
2: Ah, the old, when did they change the rules on me conundrum. Yes, I can see how that would be a concern for some of you.
1: Not me. I am reversing my stance. My legacy is secured.
2: No, me. Uh, um... What are
4: you people babbling about? Just a moment ago, everyone was in agreement with my assessment. We're schlock, and we were fine with it. Now, what's this, this, this... Rancid denialism? Shirley, Wolfie, why are you refusing to accept reality? Because I
1: really... Because reality is what I says it is. Right. Listen. We don't appear in horror movies anymore, right? right? Right. But horror movies are still getting made, right? Right. Right, right, right. right. That's my point. We might not be in it now, but we were there when this whole thing started. And if you look at the material, the setups are different. The costumes, the period, the gore, but they still scare the same. Same fears, same bumps in the night. The skin may be new, but the skeleton is unchanging. Pun intended. I'm
0: not sure that's actually a pun. And to
1: take this further, I want to mark my territory here. Out of every one of you, my legacy stands securest. Werewolves. We're metaphors for puberty and also violent murder. When you think of modern horror, you think of sex having teenagers getting their throats torn out. Case... Oh, poppycock.
3: Slashes haven't mattered since the Berlin Wall was still erect. Ghosts, we linger. Like a fart in an elevator.
0: Ah. I, I like to think there's uh, something to be said for a science uh, Please,
2: and... you've all forgotten what drove the Gothic out. It was the old gods and the ancient magics come to haunt humanity once again.
4: Everybody hush! Okay, I see What we have here is a matter of debate. The fact is, every one of us has a strain of modern horror we can claim as our own. Now, one might ask the table to leave this subject at that sort of mutual agreement, but (laughs) that's not this table. So, here's what we're going to do. Everyone is going to get a chance to make their case... And I can't think of a better way than with a good old-fashioned set of scary stories around the proverbial campfire. One story each, one style each. As for who begins, do we have any volunteers? Any? you were saying something about having driven out the Gothic?
2: Just making the observation that if you look at it chronologically, modern horror begins with Lovecraft. Ugh. Oh, you know it's true. And what is Lovecraftian horror? Modern man meddling with ancient, incomprehensible gods and magics. Now, I'm no expert in those subjects, but it sure does sound to me like it's not exactly a Miles Leap from Egyptology.
1: Lovecraft's trash. Describing a monster as indescribable is just a cheap way to avoid writing a lot.
2: Oh, spoken like someone who's never read Lovecraft. Hey! All right, first round's on me. Lady, gentlemen, settle back as I recount to you the dread tale of... The Dentist of Kingsport... Are you sticking with that title? I, 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 I was on the spot. It, it, it happens to the best. I'll think of something better. No, 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 no. You, you, you tell the story.
3: Yes, uh, you tell the story, and we'll have a go
2: at the title when you're done. Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, where to begin? Kingsport, Massachusetts is a town of spires... "'of steeples and of secrets. "'In the mornings, the cliffs, the sea, and the fog "'all blend into one. "'So much so that there was once a habit of elderly folk "'patrolling the coastline in the early morn, "'equipped with lanterns to ensure no wayward souls "'took a step into thin air "'and went tumbling into the cold embrace of the Atlantic. "'Ah, but like so many communal traditions, "'it seems to have vanished with the fog, "'rolled back across the Atlantic.' leaving American shores far behind. The town is, in that classic New England way, caught in a duel between the old world and the new. Architecturally, it is hoary with stacked chimneys and deserted keys and overhanging gables, but in the spirit and in the stride of the people, there is something new creeping in. We find Kingsport in the early years of the 20th century, between the wars and above its station, thriving from an influx of a new kind of culture, that of consumerism. Great murals plaster the side of its antediluvian buildings, promising miracle cures for baldness, boasting of new strains of potato and promoting the miracle of the motor car. And chief among the heralds of the new capitalism stands Harry's, A new kind of restaurant, guaranteeing faster meals, faster deliveries, faster everything. Regard, walking through these twisted streets, tangled in time, John Carter, a man whose shoulders are hunched and his head bowed in solemn purpose. He shrinks from the smiles of passersby, and if he gazes at the advertisements which surround him, he glowers. John Carter has come with the intent of visiting his brother. The eminent and well-regarded local dentist, Dr. Michael Carter, a man of the community, of upstanding character and care for his patients, a man of whom any small New England town could be proud. Dr. Carter has recently taken up a new residence, and it is in relation to this that John has come to visit him. John, you must understand, "'has certain objections to his brother's new abode. "'Oh, certainly, the amenities are wonderful, "'but the neighbors are a sight. "'And, not to mention the location, "'on a hill overlooking the town, "'so far away from any meaningful engagement "'with his fellow citizens. "'But most of all, it is the suddenness "'and the associated, unexpected quality "'of his brother's move, which has drawn concern.' Normally, this sort of thing is planned out, discussed, and evaluated long ahead of time. But dear brother Michael just up and moved overnight to a padded cell in the Kingsport Asylum for the Mentally Deranged. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Michael Carter is a pitiable sight. The man is, to put it mildly, bedraggled. Alone, at a cold steel table in the middle of the ugly, entirely too empty visiting room. Michael's hair has fallen over his face, stuck to his forehead with sweat and grime. His mouth hangs open, although the lips and teeth do move, repeating silent sentences only he knows. Slowly, this wreck of a man tears his eyes away from the patch of floor where they are held and forces them to regard the ancient disbelieving face of his beloved brother
1: michael 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 oh my god do you do you recognize me
4: hello john did they take you to the funny farm too? Michael, I... No, I'm here for
1: you. I, uh... I was planning my trip down here for Thanksgiving. You remember our Thanksgiving plans? I was gonna come visit... I was gonna come visit you. I called. I called and I called, but there was no answer. Until eventually I called the city police and... And I was told you'd been remanded to the custody of the city authorities. And that you've been declared insane. Insane and and dangerous.
4: (laughs) Insane, huh? Yeah, why not? I guess I must be by now. Or maybe I'm just so very sane that nobody can tell the difference.
1: What are you talking about?
4: How did you swing the visit? What? The visit. How'd you swing it? They don't want me seeing anyone. They've made that abundantly clear. And they're not exactly shy about throwing their weight around. I threatened legal action.
1: And the press, it it seemed logical under circumstances.
4: Circumstances? Everything about this
1: is wrong, Michael. I can't find any evidence of a trial. Was there even a trial? There's nothing on the state records. And asylums? That's state business. Not city councils. And you're speaking cogently? I don't understand why you're here. And they couldn't tell me, so... Yes, under those circumstances, it seemed appropriate to throw my weight around, too.
2: For a moment, something that could almost be called a smile flickers across Michael Carter's face as he feels, not sees, but feels, the passionate concern, the bare humanity, the simple, fierce love of his younger brother. He'd almost forgotten human beings could be this way, but then, his eyes dull. His whole face withdraws once again into itself.
4: Well that explains it. They'd, they'd want to avoid press. And now you're here. John, I'm gonna tell you why I'm here. I'm gonna tell you because I think if I don't, you won't believe me when I tell you, for the love of God, get out. Go, flee. You have to run from here. Don't worry about me. I'll be all right. I've got it figured.
1: You're not making any sense. Give me a
4: moment, goddammit. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. And then, if you've ever loved me, run like the hot breath of hell is stabbing at your heels. Okay. It began last week. No. No. In truth, it predates that. It predates us all. But time's a twisted and dangerous guy. Questions of ultimate chronology will muddle before they clarify. Let us begin with last week. The morning had dawned, and my office awaited.
0: Kings Fort's derelicts problem finally seems to be coming to an end as the vagrant population around the city has thinned out noticeably. We're not sure where they've gone, but we're glad it's not here.
4: Good morning, Sarah. How'd the moon treat you?
3: Well enough, thank you, Dr. Carter. And how's the sun treated you?
4: Well, it's only been allowed two hours of effect so far, but they haven't been pleasant. I overslept, missed breakfast, and now I am resigned to be the fussy man of the morning.
3: (laughs) There's a Harry's around the corner. You want me to run off and grab you a bagel or some such?
4: I, uh, no thanks, Sarah. I don't, um... Between you and me, I don't care much for Harry's. There's something... I tried one of their hamburgers once, and, uh, well, it's just not for me.
3: Fair enough. You'll just have to hold out till lunchtime, I suppose.
4: As Job endured, so shall I. So, what's on the docket?
3: Full up. Thirteen appointments.
4: Good Lord. That's a new high. Not that we haven't been trending upwards, of course, but, uh... Tell me, Sarah, of this baker's dozen, how many are displaying those symptoms?
3: By those symptoms, you mean...
4: I mean those symptoms.
3: I thought so.
4: pre decay, extreme sensitivity, all rapid onset. Same stuff that's been plaguing the teeth of Half Kingsport for the past month.
3: Well, you've got one regular checkup, and the rest... Hmm. Hmm...
4: Something's wrong with this, Sarah. Wrong? Well, I'm no epidemiologist, but concentration like this in both time and place is not normal. It bespeaks an outbreak. Of what? I don't know. But you remember Mr. Daniels.
3: How could I forget?
4: I couldn't tell you at the time because, well, did you see Mr. Daniels' teeth?
3: I wish I hadn't. When he smiled at me, I felt something foul in the back of my throat. I, I thought I saw them move, like ants. Wriggling.
4: When I touched them, the gums bled. Well, that's not. Green. Something is wrong with the teeth in Kingsport, Sarah.
3: Well, I. I'm sure if anyone can get to the bottom of things, it's you, doctor.
4: Uh, I'm out of my depth. I know how to fill cavities, not diagnose new diseases. Besides, this whole profession's a new thing, as you well know. We've barely been handling teeth scientifically for three decades. There's bound to be a few true unknowns. I've been corresponding with some colleagues in Harvard. See if they can produce the goods.
3: How's the word? I see. You know, it might not be my place to say... Say
4: on, Sarah. I have a few minutes yet.
3: Well, as I understand it, traditionally, matters of ill health, communicably speaking, you, you first find him in any real number among... Well... Among the poor, Dr. Carter. The poorer, the sicker. I I was thinking... You
4: were thinking I should make investigations into the city's underclass.
3: Only if you're interested, of course.
4: Mm, I am interested very much. Though this, this does raise another question. Doctor? It's probably nothing. Just, well, you've observed the transience of Kingsport, yes?
3: I... Not in any serious detail.
4: Where have they gone? I... You must have noticed the decline. They vanished. As I entered, I overheard your little radio speaking on the matter just before you switched it off.
3: (laughs) Who knows? I I mean, they're hobos. There's no tracing their movements or accounting for them. They just, they wander. Always have done. Hmm.
4: Perhaps. Strange days we have seen. Ah, young Timothy Robinson. welcome. Welcome. Sarah here tells me you're here about some pain in your teeth. Is that right? Well, come on through. I knew something was wrong from the moment I smelled it. Everything was off. The boy was pallid. He trembled. He couldn't look me or anyone else in the eye. He stank. Oh God, he stank. He stank. He stank of the sea and of rotten fish. When I laid him down on that chair and finally gazed into his stupid eyes, there were no irises. It was white. And then, with the shock of a leap of a cliff, just these big pools of blood. He'd paid up front, no parental accompaniment. So there's no one I could ask what the hell was going on. His fingers jawed. By the way, something was wrong there, too. I didn't look too close. Perhaps I should have, but I told myself he was just a boy biting his nails. But that wasn't it. The fingernails were peeling off, curling up, and splintering into tiny fragments. I think you, I don't know why. Oh God! Then he opened his mouth. Remember what I said earlier about Mr. Daniel's teeth? It was like that, only they were moving. Slightly, but I could tell. Back and forth. Barely a few millimeters, but I could tell. His teeth were pulsing in his mouth, like the tendrils of some sea creature beckoning to its prey. And those teeth were black, John. Not dirty, not brown. Black. Black like coal. When he opened his mouth, I thought I was going to throw up there and then. I couldn't take it. I pulled myself together and I brought the scalar pick to his mouth. I hesitated. And in that moment, I thought I saw in those great big pools of eyes something like fear. And he said to me, please, it hurts. So, I touched his teeth with the pick, and the second I even laid the tool on an incisor, it dropped out, like like a lizard leaving its tail. The boy was thirteen. These were not baby teeth, but behind that incisor I saw, it was like, do you know how sharks' teeth work? They have rows, rows and rows of teeth that push forward whenever they lose one. Well... This 13 year old boy's mouth. Bind his teeth, there were these yellowed knobs piercing the roof of his mouth, pressing down from above. His whole mouth was raw and oozing with blood and something green. And in that moment, the moment I thought to myself, I have to be dreaming. I must be dreaming. He lunged at me. Well? Well, it was the most terrified I'd ever been in my life. But he's still a 13-year-old kid, so... I got him off me, and I locked him in the operating room, and I called the cops. And they dragged him out, and I don't know what happened to him after that. I, um... I canceled my appointments for the rest of the day, and I went home. I don't blame you. I slept through the day. Then, when night drew up, I... uh, I don't know. I had to walk. So... I walked, I walked, John, through the streets of this city where I've lived for almost a decade. And I can tell you it was like I was somewhere else. Somewhere I wasn't meant to be. Everyone I saw had those dead eyes. Those black eyes. Maybe I was imagining it, but I couldn't stop seeing them everywhere. The buildings, the spires, and the old towers, they just... they felt like those black teeth looming in on me, ready to swallow me whole, and then, then I saw it. Saw what? There's an old lot, an empty lot, down on Cutler Street. Lots of hobos hang there, what few there still are in the city anyway. Now I can't tell you why, but I knew I had to be there. I knew whatever was... Happening, I just knew. So, down on Cutner, that lot, I see four or five homeless guys just wandering around, hanging out, you know. And a truck, like, like a meat truck, pulls up, and I see a man step out, and he greets these homeless men, and he says, "Welcome, boys. Christmas has come early. Just step inside." Tomatoes, sausages, nice crispy bacon. Now I know. I just know. There's no bacon in that truck or anything else. So I watch as they file in. And the doors close behind them. And the truck pulls away. Now it's moving at a snail's pace down those twisted streets, turning every few seconds in no hurry. So... Knowing Kingsport like I do, knowing the alleys, and the rooftops, and the hideaways like I do, I follow it, I keep up with it. And you know where it stops? It stops at Harry's. Harry's fucking warehouse.
2: <laughs> what Michael Carter saw at Harry's fucking warehouse defies description and beggars belief. And it bears repeating. He crept to its windows and pressed his nose against the glass. There were meat hooks and conveyor belts and all the necessaries for such a place. Ah, but the inescapable, undeniable fact of the building was the statue. In its center, lit by a dozen smoldering candles, glowing like some ancient, terrible star, stood a statue of a creature not of the human world. Huge pincers framed its armored body, while tentacles slithered between the cracks and draped themselves around the hulk, so that, in tandem with the flickering candlelight, it was almost impossible to discern the shape of the beast. Dr. Carter's eyes could scarcely focus on it. Every time he gazed on the creature anew, he lasted mere seconds before the sheer incongruity, the weirdness of it, forced his eyes to the ground above the statue, which pulsated with a kind of unknowable energy, hung a sign bearing a name. At least it might have been a name. Geniingo. And on the floor at the creature's feet, if it could be said to have any, was scrawled a message. Perhaps a title. Guardian, and the key of the watery gates. It was into this building that Kingsport's transient population was shuffled. It was in this building that the spirit of Janai the lobster of the deep, was invoked. And it was out of this building that the meats of Harry's, the meats enjoyed and adored all across town, flowed into the mouths of waiting customers. The same customers who queued at Dr. Carter's doors, complaining of their aching teeth, and who bit by bit were changing. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it started as a disease It started as a disease But it's grown, John It's grown There Something else now They run the town They've worked out how to blend in To use our systems to seem innocuous Hence this place I don't even know when they put it up But they did. And as soon as they realized what I knew, here I came. And I am begging you. Go. Michael. Go! God damn it. I don't know how much they've heard or what their plans are for you, but I can promise you this. They let you come here and see me because they are biding their time. And they didn't want any exposure. Now, you're Daniel in the lion's den, so I'm telling you, run before they wake up.
1: I can't leave you.
4: Yes, you can. We always can. If you stay here for a second longer, you will die. And nothing motivates the self-like survival. Michael! Run! I... I'll come back for
1: you.
2: As John Carter walks down the hallways of the Kingsport Asylum for the Mentally Deranged as John Carter stumbles across the dead lawns that girt that decaying building. As John Carter runs through the buckling alleys of Kingsport, Massachusetts, he keeps his eyes fixed ahead of him. He does not dare look at another soul. He hears his brother's warning ring through his heart and mind, and he prays to whoever is listening that he will be allowed to leave. He prays, but he grows uncertain. For with every frantic step, with every deliberate avoidance of another's gaze, a gnawing thought grows within John Carter. Suspicion, the faces he passes, the ones he refuses to look at. He feels, somewhere, in an unkempt corner of his soul, the faces are closing in, like he's being cornered. at him with the dull, full, black eyes of a predator, watching, hungry, and smiling. Well, there you have it. Proof that the horror of the old gods remains as potent as Ever.
1: Eh, too much implication. Show us the blood. On the
3: contrary. Cannibalism. Really? Shock value doesn't last, dear, but
2: nice try. I loved it.
0: I thought it had real bite. Uh, No pun intended.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Adam. It's good to know at least one of you has taste. And, uh, speaking of bite, (coughs) Vlad... Your verdict?
4: Not too shabby, Annie, not too shabby. No masterpiece, but I felt a chill or two run through what's left of my soul.
2: I'll take that. So, the gauntlet is thrown, the challenge is laid. Who's going to be next?
3: Well, I think before we continue any further with this charming little
2: exercise...
3: And I take it we are continuing. Then I think we need another round of drinks. And unless I'm very much mistaken, and I never am, I do believe it's your shout, Wolfgang.
1: (laughs) Bullshit. Your math is off.
3: Working backwards, Frank, Vlad, Frank, myself, Annie, Frank, Frank, Vlad one other time, and then you. Let
2: Frank
1: do it. He's got no issue with going multiples. Probably stitched multiple hearts. into
0: Guys, please.
2: Adam just bought our last round, Wolfgang, literally half an hour ago. Now, either you toddle off and fulfill the most basic, amicable obligation, or I'll blow gently in your face the whole evening.
1: You're a cruel mistress, you know
2: that. <laughs> Good boy.
4: Hey, um, thanks.
2: Don't mention it, you big lug.
4: Yes, yes, very touching. Can we address the fact that he just left without inquiring what we want? Surely
3: he he knows our usuals by now.
4: Mm, I would not bet on it. Oh,
3: God. We're all going to be drinking fucking Fosters, aren't we?
4: (sighs) Likely mixed with the house (laughs) burb.
3: I wish I was still alive so I could ask someone to kill me. Oh,
0: we aren't too far from a Catholic church I could ask about an
4: exorcism.
3: No, 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 no. Let me press on. There are more drinks in heaven and earth and all that.
4: Oh, okay. While well, he's gone, new game. You can haunt any Shakespeare play you choose. Does the Lion King count? Sure. The Lion King.
3: Macbeth,
2: obviously. Annie? Hmm. Hamlet?
4: That's sort of been covered. Sorry.
2: Ask me why. What? Ask me why, Hamlet.
4: Why, Hamlet? <laughs>
2: Because he's got mummy issues.
4: Hey. I
2: can't believe you. Ah, oh, thank you, thank you. Here are we. Okay.
1: Five fosters and bourbon. Uh. Uh. What? You asked me to get around and I got it.
4: Just sit down, flea bag. It's a shame, you know. What is? The night's so young. And clearly the scariest thing we'll encounter all evening is is the glass in front of us.
3: Oh, I wouldn't know about that. Like you said, the night is young and we're just getting started. Tales from the Tombstone Tavern is written and edited by Delmar Tablanch, de directed by Jamie Boucher and produced by me, Amina Hamid. It starred Delmar Tablanch de as the narrator and Adam, Joshua Manning as Vlad Dracul. Anna Chedham-Cooper as Lady Shirley Edith James, Percival Fagent as Wolfgang the Wolfman, and Senna Briar as Queen Ankh-Essenamon, with original music by Sideris and Sword Coast Soundscapes. Thanks to Arts Council England for their support.